You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, the audio supplement to the blog of the same name about the signs, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati, uh, the remains of a fossilized trackway. I'm yet another European Spinosaur. Sorry, I mean, I'm Mark. Yeah, and I'm, I'm Niels. I'm just Niels. I'm not saying anything <laughs> clever today. In episode 15, uh, illustrator and visual storyteller Levi Hastings will be joining me to tell us how some of his other passions intersect with that of paleontology, as well as revealing the ways in which he and I share a not altogether surprising kinship. Before that, the subject of our vintage dinosaur art discussion will be the works of Konstantin Konstantinovich Fyodorov, in particular those which he produced for Moscow State Darwin Museum. But first, we begin on a resoundingly cheerful note, uh, that of a springtide apocalypse, do we not, Niels? Oh, yes. I mean, spring is in the air. Can you smell it? Just about. Spring and apocalypse. Yeah, actually, this does, this is ringing bells, you know. It's just, just, yeah. <laughs> this is a modern day resonance. It's a little on the nose, so to say. Yes, um, especially because it's, uh, it's also about climate change. Indeed. Isn't that just encouraging? Anyway, uh, a bit of news that is uh, making a big splash. One could even say it's making an impact. Many questions have been asked about the how and when of the dinosaur extinction at the end of the Cretaceous. Ha, got you there. You thought it was about something else, but no, it's about the Cretaceous. What else did we Many think of, of these questions are being answered by science right now. Um, it's kind of weird to think just how recent it's been since we know of the meteor impacts that ended the Mesozoic, and many mysteries remain yet unsolved. Why did some clades of animals survive the impact and the uh, subsequent hardships while others perished? What time of year was it when the asteroid hit? A new paper out in Nature by Melanie During et al. has now answered this last question. After looking at the growth records and carbon footprints on the fossils of certain fish, to be precise, a few species of sturgeons, and paddlefish, which have this um, annual reproductive cycle, the authors have concluded that the impact must have happened on a nice day in the spring or perhaps early summer, at least uh, in the northern hemisphere. They go on to suggest how the fact that it happened at precisely this time of year might have had an impact on the disasters that followed, because springtime is exactly the time when nature is supposed to be in bloom and thus nature is at its most fragile to disturbance. It would certainly explain why the southern hemisphere, which was experiencing autumn at the time, was much quicker to recover from the impact. Uh, it also strengthens the belief that the KT extinction was not just a matter of an asteroid hitting Earth. It was one of the asteroids hitting at precisely the worst imaginable time in precisely the worst imaginable place. And there you have it. That's your springtime apocalypse. It... Uh... It certainly adds yet another layer of tragic poetry to this whole affair, were that even possible. I was going to say about the fish, um, one fascinating thing about the study was the what, the tiny glass sort of um, spheres, spheroids that they found inside the remains of the fish. They indicated that yeah. they died pretty much at the time of the impact, or shortly afterwards, which is really fascinating. I mean, it's um, really giving us a picture of that specific moment in deep time, which is particularly interesting. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, you wouldn't expect um, anything to preserve from that time, really, because, you know, no. that asteroid is going to be wiping out everything in its immediate vicinity, right? Yeah. 
you don't expect it to be t- you don't expect fossils to be that specific for some reason. You just think, oh well, we'll find some from around that time, maybe some from slightly before and some from slightly after, but not at that exact time when that happened. Um, yes, that's what has enabled them to be so precise about when it happened was um, mm. the fact that these fish fossils really do indicate the specific time period, you know, right down to the um, w- within a few months yeah. of when it happened, which is incredible. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And it's extraordinary to find animals that were just there. They lived through the whole thing. Yeah, they were there. Not for very long. Well, <laughs> they lived through it until they didn't anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then they died. Alas. And now, uh, something almost comfortingly prosaic by comparison, Mark. Uh, Oviraptorosaur jaws? Yes, because talking about new European spinosaurs would be too obvious. So I'm going to talk about cranial muscle reconstructions. Um, well, quantify, quantifying, quantify, adaptation for high bite forces in Oviraptorosauria, which is a paper by Luke E. Mead and Weissam Ma, published in Nature's Scientific Reports. So it's open access. Everyone can go and read this lovely paper. Essentially, the authors have used digital techniques to reconstruct the skulls and adductor muscle anatomy of Citipati, Khan, Conchoraptor, or Conchoraptor, and Incisivosaurus. The latter being chosen as it's the earliest diverging of Raptorosaur. And it had teeth. Right. Unlike the others, of course, they're all later of retrosaurs and they just had um, toothless beaks. Uh, the reconstructions have been used to deduce the gape and bite forces of these animals to gain insight into their chomping power and changing dietary habits over time. Uh, the skulls were basically based on CT scans and uh, photogrammetry, and the muscles are based on, uh, quote, skull morphology, studies of related theropod groups, and extant analogues. Basically, they had a um, detailed look at the adductor muscles, the different taxa, obviously very complicated reconstructions, um, using lots and lots of scary maths. And there are tables full of scary maths in this paper. Um, it's all terrifying if you're um, really not into maths. Oh, oh heavens. Yes, exactly. I, We're all, uh, I'm already win- win- wincing as I think about it. Yeah, we're all having a fit with the vapors. Uh, we need our spinning sorts. <laughs> as you might intuitively expect... The more advanced, inverted commas, um, the later of reptosaurs have more powerful bites. So not only do things like Khan and um, Citipati have more powerful bites than Incisivosaurus, which I cannot say. Uh, they also have um, much more powerful bites than other herbivorous theropod dinosaurs of even considerably larger body mass. So things like Therizinosaurus. Really? Well, but the, the big therizinosaurs, um, big ornithomimosaurs, have much weaker bites when compared with these oviraptorosaurs, which is very interesting. And there's a very nice graph, uh, which is figure four in the paper, plotting bite force against body mass. And it reveals you'd be much better off being bitten by something like Struthiomimus than even Khan, which is pretty small. And City Patty would probably just take your hand off. Yikes. <laughs> so wow. It's like a snapping turtle. Yes, it had a pretty powerful bite. Um, Not that that's at all surprising, of course. No, although, of course, they weren't necessarily predatory, maybe of small animals, but they seem to be um, primarily herbivorous or maybe omnivorous rather than being predators. But um, as in, you know, macro predators, obviously. But, uh, of course, they lived alongside a number of other herbivorous dinosaurs, not just the aforementioned therizinosaurs and ornithomimosaurs, but also large ornithischian herbivores. So where was the neef, neef? <laughs> where was the niche differentiation taking place and the authors suggest that perhaps they were tackling tougher plant material they're able to exploit tough plant material in some way 
and it seems particularly relevant to the taxa that, well, in fact, most of them lived in quite arid environments with rather tough plants. Yeah, right. So the analogy with parrots is seems to be quite valid in some ways, um, in that they had toothless right. beaks and a deep skull and a powerful bite. Um, and of course, parrots are mostly herbivorous. So um, yeah, very interesting. And lots and lots of neat uh, figures and diagrams and graphs and charts in the paper, if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's really cool. And also kind of what you would expect, of course. Um, yes. If you have a lot of, of herbivorous animals living in at the same time, that there's going to be some niche partitioning going on. You mm. know, it's what we maybe intuitively expect looking at animal skulls, where they have big, deep jaws. Um, but on the other hand, it's good to have that backed up by data, which is what I said previously, you know, last time with the, the nodosaur brains. Um, you can say something about an animal, you know. Well, intuitively, it looks like it has a powerful bite and it's probably in a different niche to the other animals in its environment. But it's good to have that backed up by mm. this kind of um, this computer modeling and this data. Um, one thing they do say yes. in, this, in the paper is, of course, they can't model the keratinous covering, the sheath of the beak, and that could have significantly changed the shape of it. So there is kind of a caveat there. But nevertheless, right. it's um, right. interesting insight into their behavior and feeding strategies. And also there was a Spinosaur that somebody named in, in Spain or something. Well, no, Portugal, um, but, you know, I, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> nobody cares about big theropods. No one cares about yeah. big theropods. Uh, I'm over them now. I'm all about um, small feathered theropods and their feeding strategies and behavior. That's, that's all I care <laughs> yeah, about. The, the, the more they look like birds, the better. Yeah, no more exactly. giant um, Iberian Peninsula Spinosaurs for me. That's it's over. Thank you, Mark. And finally, uh, hot on the tail of the greatest marine reptile of the British Isles last month, we take to the sky this time for an equally historic pterosaur discovery. Yes. A new paper whose lead author is none other than our friend, favorite pterosaur researcher and former guest Natalia Jagielska, describes Jacques Skianach, a new genus and species of ramphorhynchine pterosaur from the Middle Jurassic of the Isle of Skye. This uh, beautifully preserved, articulated, almost complete specimen was first discovered by Amelia Penny on a National Geographic funded trip uh, led by Steve Brissetti in 2017. Oh, no, not Steve Brissetti. Indeed him. Yeah. Sorry. Dated to around 170 million years ago, Jark is not only the largest known Jurassic pterosaur with an estimated 2.5 meter wingspan, but is also hugely significant in pushing the emergence of larger pterosaurs back far earlier than the fossil record has so far suggested, accustomed as we are to the diminutive pterosaurs of the Triassic and Jurassic and then the fighter jet-sized as darkets of the Cretaceous. And what's more, Natalia and colleagues also suggest that this individual was not yet fully grown and its wingspan could have reached a possible three meters as an adult. Wow. Uh, Yes, indeed. I mean, that's bigger than anything that flies today, right? Uh, uh, As far as I'm aware, yes. Um, I believe it is comparable to an albatross, at least. The name Jacques Skianach is uh, derived from Scottish Gaelic and can be simultaneously translated as winged reptile and reptile from sky. There is also an element of the Gallic name for the Isle of Skye itself, which can also be interpreted as the winged isle, 
in addition to the numerous beautiful visuals prepared by Natalia and co-authors. The paleoplushy artist Rebecca Groom, who was also our guest in episode 5, has also worked with Natalia to create the most extraordinary plushie of Jacques, which, to my mind, must be regarded as a pretty historic event in itself. I want one. I do want one as well. (laughs) See, we can all commission uh, uh, Bex for this. Uh, The paper... Uh, by Jagielska et al, uh, is published by Current Biology and is open access and links, as always, uh, in the show notes. Yeah, fantastic. Congratulations to all. Congratulations. Right. On to our vintage dinosaur art discussion. Vintage dinosaur art. The works of Konstantin Konstantinovich Fyodorov, a figure for whom the all-encompassing descriptor of interesting must generously serve, wouldn't you say, Niels? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it still feels a bit weird to be doing a Russian paleo artist right now. Indeed. Um, I swear that we didn't set this up. We could not have foreseen events uh, unfolding this way. So, uh, Fyodorov, this is a figure about whom we know relatively little and have come to learn relatively recently, mostly through to the uh, work of uh, Zoe Lescaz. That's right. And of course, that massive, massive book that she wrote called Paleo Art. It's uh, not as much a coffee table book as it is just a coffee table. It's it's, it's giant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Not a dining table, but... Yeah. You know. But yeah, there's a, whole, uh, there's a whole chapter in there about Soviet-era Russian paleo art. And there's some really amazing stuff in there uh, that is really quite distinct from what we're used to seeing in, in Western paleo art and also yes. from the likes of uh, Burian. And very rarely seen. We, we, we just never see it in the West. That's the thing. Like, we, yeah, we see plenty of Burian and, and all the copies of <laughs> Burian and the endless copies, but we never see any of this stuff. Um, I think that book is really the only place that it's ever been exposed. Mm, yes. Yes, uh, exactly. And most of the art featured in Lascaz is... Um, by uh, by today's artist, uh, Mr. Fyodorov, it's it's really extraordinary. Uh, thanks to Velizar Simeonovsky, who has sent us some digital copies of the catalogue of Fyodorov's work. Unfortunately, the whole thing is in Russian, so <laughs> my Russian ain't what it used to be, so I, I had to use Google Translate a lot. He lived from 1904 to 1980, uh, was active as a, a scientist, a paleontologist, and an artist, for most of his life, and in his capacity as a paleo artist, worked mostly for the uh, State Darwin Museum in Moscow. His scientific advisor uh, some of the time was Mr. Uh, Alexander Coates, who was the uh, founder of the museum. But he also worked a lot on his own. He uh, went on expeditions to Mongolia, uh, did a lot of science himself. And if you read Lascaz, it turns out this man, he was a character. <laughs> yes, Is that euphemism for bastard? Uh, yes, <laughs> without mincing words. He was an awful person. <laughs> well, well, according uh, to the scars, at least. a picture of him that is less than flattering. Oh, less than flattering, okay. Yes. That's, that's uh, too bad. Um, I mean, at least according to the scars, he uh, was a pretty domineering person who had a rather dim view of most of his contemporaries. It seems to me like uh, someone with whom, as Niels has also said, uh, someone with whom I would have lost patience very quickly. Uh, I mean, the man was an entire internet by himself. <laughs> right. <laughs> I really want to talk about his tyrannosaurs. 
I'm sorry, no, it's obvious coming from me. Of course, I want to talk uh, about let's his talk about let's talk about his tyrannosaurus. Yeah, let's start somewhere. Yeah, that's that's somewhere to start, isn't it? That's somewhere the tyrannosaurus. Let's start, let's start with the tyrannosaurus. They're obviously the most important, the most important thing that he ever painted, obviously. <laughs> so, one thing that's particularly striking about them is the fact that he they're, they're very of their time in so many ways. But he does give them a very chunky neck, which is actually striking in how almost modern it seems. Um, especially as he seems to um, take into account the sagittal crest when it comes to their musculature. So a lot of the tyrannosaurs from that time, a lot of artists seem to smooth over the back of the head so that it has this nice yes, um, yeah, right. downward curve meeting a very upright body. He gives them a really chunky, well, I said a really chunky, robust, muscular neck, which then almost seems at odds mm. with the kind of body that he gives them. I mean, if, there's this amazing piece with a Tarbosaurus standing in a Mongolian landscape with some ankylosaurs. It's probably my yeah, uh, favorite. That's, that's an interesting piece, piece because that one is from the very year that Tarbosaurus was described. Um, right. He, uh, Fyodorov um, painted most of his major dinosaur-related works in the late 30s, early 40s. Uh, the Tarbosaurus piece is from 1954. So it was freshly described by um, Maliev, I think. And... Um, it's sort of the Soviet knockoff T-Rex, so uh, I'm sure he was well chuffed to have that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can see that the skull is very well observed. I think he may have lacked... Absolutely. Yeah, this, this head in particular is extremely well observed. And as I said, the neck is really muscular and looks exactly like a Tyrannosaur neck should. But then the body becomes this very standard sort of man-in-a-suit Tyrannosaur, which you can see where the big pelvic bones would be, but then... Where's its rib cage? Where, where's its broad rib cage? It's just completely disappeared. And that it is mm. somewhat reminiscent of a lot of contemporary art. But if you look at something like Burian with his Tarbosaurus, um, his famous Tarbosaurus, which of course has its weird splayed legs, of course, but that also its anatomy seems to make a lot more sense. Like it's, um, it almost sort of seems to sort of sink in at the shoulders, or it doesn't really seem to have any shoulders. Of course, the toe and the arms are quite accurate, but it just seems to be lacking that any kind of ribcage to speak of. <laughs> like it just sort of, seems sort of clapped in on itself and then it has, suddenly has big expanded hips, which is a bit bizarre. It's so, it's so fleshy. It's so meaty. There's, there's so much of it. <laughs> yes. Well, it isn't, it isn't. Because the neck and the neck's very fleshy and the legs, but not the middle of it. The middle of it seems to just sort of disappear and then it, it expands out again and the tail's mm. obviously very thick and fleshy. But I just want to say the piece as a whole is fantastic. I absolutely love it. It's mm. wonderful. Look at that. It's yeah, it's so atmospheric and so evocative. And I think a lot of it's to do with the so dramatic. The colours, blue and orange. Yeah, the contrasting colours. Exactly works every time. Blue and orange. Blue and orange. That's what you got to do. <laughs> in fact, pretty much anyone in Hollywood in the last like ten years. But, but um, right. blue and orange, blue sky, orange ground, and the way he's framed it as well. The uh, the way the tyrannosaur is picked out in this landscape. You, you have the ankylosaurs there too, but yeah, the, f the focus, the eye is drawn to that tyrannosaur that's standing upright. It's really, really striking. I mean, it, as, as you say, it does help that it's contrasting against the sky. But it's an absolutely fantastic piece. I love the style of it as well. And uh, of course, the style that he applies to all of his work, um, it's not, I, I believe you mentioned when you reviewed it for the blog, it's not necessarily that kind of uh, classical realist style that you'd expect of Western paleo artists it's yeah well bit... there's there's some of that yeah and then there's places where he goes completely the other way mm -hmm. that's true 
But I think that's that's among the most distinctive things. If you look at, for instance, the the, the two dinosaur pieces that he produced for the the Darwin Museum in uh, 1938. Ah, oh, yeah, got you. And if you if you look at these pieces, this fits in quite well with Knight, right? Yes, it does. Oh, yes. Uh, quite similar style. You have a, you have a Jurassic scene and a, and a Cretaceous scene. Let's look at uh, let's look at the Cretaceous scene first, because there's a T Rex on. Yeah, the T Rex, as you say, is quite knight. Um, the musculature, yeah, I, I, I think you mentioned this in your review as well. But the um, the musculature is actually more modern, if you like, than knights. Knights not always gave his dinosaurs very lizardy, weedy musculature, whereas the T Rex in that scene clearly has very well developed thighs. Um, <laughs> and uh, to go back to the Jurassic scene, the sauropod there as well has extremely well, extremely chunky limbs, as it should. It should be a very muscular animal. It's and... positively hulking. Yeah. Yes, so, but with a but with um, a ribbon like neck. Just like neck. He, he gives the animals so much meat. Yeah, which is an interesting contrast. I, I was just going to say, there's such a contrast here between the old and the new. What we would consider a more modern sort of renaissance or post-renaissance look at dinosaur anatomy versus the very old-fashioned view we have things like extremely muscular t-rex thighs versus weird sprawling triceratops and stegosaurs i mean the stegosaur in particular is utterly bizarre looking and it's true of every stegosaur that i've seen by him they're all really weird (laughs) like they have (laughs) a Basically, all their limbs are sprawling, and their necks are held out this awkward angle, and they just look completely bizarre. Yeah, if you look at the stegosaur, I think this this stegosaur um, is closest to the one by Heinrich Harder. I don't, I don't know it well <laughs> enough. I'm sorry. And uh, and then the T Rex, the T Rex carries over actually quite well from uh, from Vatagin's T Rex. Oh right, okay. I, I mean, I would compare it to Knight's. Um, actually, Knight's original T Rex with the lizardy head, because yeah, the, the head is clearly not really right. based on. Um, that closely on a real t-rex yeah. skull but you, you know you have to keep in mind that um just like just like burian he had no access to the fossils right and by the right. time tarbosaurus comes along and by the time the the russian expeditions to mongolia really gets underway by that time he does yeah it's clear that tarbosaurus with the tarbosaurus he had much better reference material <laughs> i will say i had a look at this earlier on and i went back and compared it to burian and i think burian's work is um much more convincing, shall we say. I think Brion had a better grasp of the anatomy of these animals, which is weird because this guy is, was obviously an extremely talented wildlife artist. If you look at his um, work on excellent animals, it's incredible. And even his prehistoric mammals were also really impressive. Yeah, as a scientist, he worked mostly on mammals, um, especially Cenozoic. Okay, that makes sense. Extinct mammals. Yeah. And uh, if you look at, at the, at the catalogue, most of it is that stuff. Most of it is Cenozoic mammal stuff. Indeed, yeah, and, it is. Um, he, he, he clearly feels more at home with half, those. half of it is just Paraceratherium, basically. <laughs> he was obsessed with Paraceratherium or Indricotherium, if you prefer. I, I wanted to bring our attention to, um, whilst we were talking about T-Rex, to bring our attention to the one where the T-Rex is, is trying to fight off three Triceratops. Um, I'm especially struck by this one, I think. Yeah, not doing very well. Not doing really well at all. I no. mean, that <laughs> is an extraordinary piece. It is extraordinary. And the funny yes. thing is, he made this right after he made those museum pieces that we just talked about, because this piece is either uh, 1939 or 1940. Mm. It's radically different to those. Um, it's radically different. He can do else. everything. Yeah. 
Yes. Okay, I, I was going to say that the Tyrannosaur in this piece really reminds me of that Tarbosaurus from the later Tarbosaurus piece. Um, in that it has a very similar posture. Yes. Yeah, it is, yeah. It has those chunky legs. It has a very chunky neck, but also the weird pear-shaped body and the splayed legs and the lack of a kind of expanded rib cage or anything like that. Also, the Triceratops, um, especially the one on the right-hand side, is very night. Mm. And again, we have the sort of splayed limbs, especially with the one the one on the left looks really strange, like it's rubbing its belly along the ground while it gores T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on there <laughs> it's really weird looking but yeah it's atmospheric certainly what's striking to me uh, about this piece is um apart from all the things we've just talked about um the the radical difference in style is that despite its its strange stylized nature it uh recalls so much to me anyway the work of douglas henderson um in the the sort of suffused really? light and the do not think so, even though they're working in completely different ways, at least in, in terms of the depiction of the animals. But, but just the, this, the use of the lighting and palette uh, reminds me so much of a lot of Douglas Henderson's um, pastel pieces. I have to be clear here, not his black and white drawings, but his pastel pieces. And now that you mention it, yeah. In, in my interview with... Um, with Levi Hastings, uh, we talked a little about the the poetic atmosphere uh, that Douglas Henderson is able to capture um, in his work, and I find so much of the same thing here in this in this painting. So, what what, what would you even call this style? I Good question. I I wouldn't I wouldn't put a label on it. Um, I mean, if if you want to just describe it uh, just in visual terms. It's it's a very impressionistic one because nothing is is delineated to to any high degree, um, and really it's more using broad gestural strokes uh, of paint uh, to to create an image. So in that sense, it it can maybe be described as impressionistic, but not necessarily because it belongs to the impressionist tradition of the. Uh, the late 19th early 20th centuries yeah but do, do you reckon there is there is a bit of uh, a bit of monet in this a bit of a bit of vincent van gogh oh, oh certainly yeah i mean yes i was i may have said that it, it doesn't necessarily belong to that tradition but because uh, the time at which fyorov was working i would have no doubt at all that he must have been at the very least influenced to some degree by the Impressionists, as well as a host of others, which we'll come um, back to, I hope, later. Um, but this one, yes, I can definitely see uh, some strong Impressionist, in terms of the actual artistic movement, uh, tendencies in here very easily. I was going to say, it is fascinatingly different to pretty much everything else that he's done, or that I've seen, um, which is, yeah. I, I was going to say much more realistic, but somewhat more realistic and certainly less Impressionistic. If we compare it to the... <clears throat> Tarbosaurus scene, for example, that's more realistic. Um, there's the various scenes with uh, Sorolophus or Sorolophus, if you prefer, that are again more realistic with more sharply delineated lines and of animals and <laughs> flora. Um, by the way, Neil, yeah. you said something that really struck me about those, about the Sorolophus pieces. Um, the fact that it makes yeah. Sorolophus look really huge and hulking, which is rarely done in. Um, art depicting hadrosaurs. Hadrosaurs often seem to be weirdly diminished in art, which is, I guess, because uh, people imagine them as these prey animals. But um, yeah, he really makes them look enormous, which they were. Um, we're talking about, you know, what, 
elephant-sized animals <laughs> wandering around. They're yeah. not exactly, um, exactly tiny. If not bigger. I mean, hadrosaurs are the largest non-sauropod dinosaurs. And Fyodorov's hadrosaurs, at least these saurolophus, really do look pretty terrifying, albeit in, in a yeah. different way from... Uh, from perhaps what what actual hadrosaurs would have looked like, um, but but completely unsettling in the way that he's depicted them, which, as you say, is a wholly refreshing view from the one of there being these uh, Cretaceous cows. Yeah, you're quite right. I mean, and in a different way, obviously his Tarbosaurus is quite terrifying and scary too, but that's obviously just a big predator with big teeth. But these are just these weird, quite surreal semi-humanoid things that are as tall as the trees that are around them and it, yeah it, i think it's how uncanny they are mm. it's what makes them scary yes i mean w- while we were talking about how Fyorov was influenced by the the greater uh, artistic movements of his period um zoe lesgars in in her book paleo art draws some parallels between uh, his later work and the Fauvist movement. And and in a sense, I do see what, what Lascars means when she says this, because um, Fauvism as a movement is, again, it's a movement that, that completely eschews realism in the traditional sense, and is, again, more uh, focused on painterly qualities and strong color and brushwork. Um, so I, I completely see uh, what Lascars was right. saying when she draws these parallels. But uh, yes. to me, at least, um, Fauvism tends more towards, uh, uh, I mean, not real abstraction as such, because it, it's still figurative painting, uh, large, by and large. Um, but, but there is a greater degree of abstraction in Fauvism as a movement than, say, uh, Expressionism, which I think is much more closely aligned to, uh, to the ways in which Fyodor was working. I mean, for example, this is really this one of the star paintings by Fyodorov, which uh, is not a dinosaur, but his his favorite animal, the Paraceratherium or Indricotherium or yes. Baluchitherium, whichever you prefer to call them, um, <laughs> etc. etc. Et uh, <laughs> et but but Niels, I remember you singling this one out in particular, uh, and you mentioned in your blog post that uh, there was something in in the animals here that made you recall uh, Salvador Dali's elephants. And 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 again, I, I can also see that very easily, especially in these te- uh, attenuated limbs. In this particular painting, I see echoes of um, Edvard Munch, the Norwegian artist and painter of the now yes. iconic The Scream. Do you not think so? I can well, see you that, know yeah. what? It never occurred to me, but I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, the, the swirling lines and colors. Exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't restrict itself to the skies. It's in the, uh, in the forms of the animals themselves. It's in the ground. It's everywhere. I would say that there is a lot more of the expressionist in Fyodorov than perhaps Fauvism. But, I mean, doesn't necessarily mean that he, he couldn't have been influenced by both, of course. My overarching feelings about uh, Fyodorov's whole body of work is just how varied it is. Um, it's it's so obvious that how good an artist he was, especially when you look at his uh, extant animals and at his Cenozoic mammals in particular. Some of the extant animals are really, really realistic. Exactly so. Which is a real contrast with the more impressionistic stuff. This is it. Just to back up what you're saying. 
Yeah, this is what I'm getting at. It's it's incredible just the range that he has. For me, in in some ways, I'm almost conflicted as to my regard for Fyodorov. Um, although this this is admittedly less to do with an attempt to reconcile his questionable character as a person uh, with his work, which again must necessarily be a question for the eternal verities, but. But my my conflict is more to do with um, with his let's call it cavalier attitude with respect to the science in creating some of his paintings, because it's one thing to create works to the best of one's knowledge and to be wrong, uh, and in some instances Fyodorov might have been innocently doing exactly this, but in others we know, uh, at least from from Lescaze's account, um, well, and and from looking at the paintings themselves, that. Um, the, that it's quite another thing to claim scientific credentials, but play fast and loose with them. And yet, despite all of this, I still almost can't help admiring some portion of this. Um, I, as someone who continually champions the expressive as well as the accurate in paleo art, I, who, who don't see art as being subservient to science, but is working hand in hand, as well as doing something far beyond the service of imparting information. Herein uh, is where my conflict with regard to Florov lies. Um, I, I both admire and question him in, in many various ways, but there's no, there's no doubting how extraordinary an artist he was. Our guest this episode is illustrator and graphic designer Levi Hastings, whose clients have ranged all the way from HBO and Washington Post to small independent businesses and publishers. His equally broad range of work, which includes comics, children's books, and editorial illustration, reflects, in his words, a lifelong obsession with natural science, travel, history, and queer culture. Levi, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to Chasmosource. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Levi, uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, among the many ways in which you and I are kindred spirits is that uh, paleontology forms but one component among our many passions. We are uh, illustrators who do paleo art as opposed to being uh, paleo artists with a capital P, as it were. Right. Um, can you tell us um, about your journey to paleontology? How uh, how was that seed planted, if there was one, and how did it grow? And what were your key nourishing influences? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think like a lot of uh, paleo artists and artists in general grew up, like dinosaurs were among the first things that I started drawing. Yeah. And they were my gateway to art in general. And I remember, I think my, my very first encounter with them was, um, I grew up in the 80s and there's there was a very sort of a popular dinosaur, like, um, you know, um, stop motion animated documentary hosted by Christopher Reeve. Oh, yes. And I don't, rem I, don't even, I don't I don't remember the name of the of the show, but it was very um, it just like it impacted me so heavily. And I it was it, I was never the same after that. And I I just couldn't get enough of it. And, you know, so then I I just didn't stop talking about it. And my parents then like went out and bought me, you know, coloring books and little, you know, like dinosaur toys. And so I think that was, that was definitely my, the catalyst. And then I just, I, I never stopped yeah. drawing them. And, um, you know, I think, I think I went through waves of, of kind of 
you know, get, you know, being, being completely obsessed with, with any kind of prehistoric life. <laughs> and then, you know, that would, that would, that would, um, that would wane and I would get into other things. And then of course, like so many folks of my generation, like Jurassic Park came along and kind of revived yes. that, you know, passion. And, um, you know, so that, you know, I was, I was 11, 12 at that point. And so, you know, preteen and that got me kind of back into dinosaurs and paleo art in a big way Yes, where, um, you know, I, I was, I was drawing in my notebooks and, um, you know, kind of trying to figure out, I, I, you know, I think like a lot of us, they, it was, it was the movie, the movie was a gateway and then we could we kind of dig deep into uh, what the science was about. And it had changed quite dramatically from the time that, you know, I was a four year old to the time I was a 12 year old, you yeah, know, of course. Of the, you know um, and so it was just very exciting to kind of dig back into it and then start reading all of the new science and, and like, in, you know, and in general, it was like, I, I, you know, moved into, um, you know, other fields in high school and college and, but, but there's never, it's like, they've never really gone away, you know, yeah. um, paleo creatures, dinosaurs in general. Um, but I, but it just never, I never was able to, or I should say at the time, I just, I, I could never see like a viable career option out of it, mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, so there was the, the practical side of me that's like, well, yeah, you know, you love drawing dinosaurs, but like, who's going to hire you to draw dinosaurs? Like, come <laughs> on. Um, so I, you know, I got into graphic design and illustration and, um, you know, was, was really interested. Um, I, so a lot of my background is like in, in editorial illustration and comic books yeah. and, um, you know, and I, I would say that like in, in my current in the current phase of, of paleo passion, I, I kind of re rediscovered it. Um, when I started doing comic conventions, yes. um, and I would say, you know, 20, 2014, I, you know, dinosaurs have always been, and you know, this is throughout my artistic life. Whenever I feel stuck or, you know, blocked, I it's, it's like always go back to dinosaurs yeah. because they're, they're just this like continuous well of inspiration and they're, they're the forms have always been so interesting to me that it's like, it's this sort of tried and true source of um, creative inspiration. So yes, it doesn't matter really like where, you know, where I'm at in my career, I can always just go back to, you know, drawing swoopy sauropods or stegosaurus. And I'm like, I feel like I'm kind of back on the horse. So to speak. <laughs> yes. um, So I was, I was, doing you know my, my first show at my first table at a comic convention uh here in seattle and i had been doing a bunch of like miniature dinosaur watercolors um yeah. as a sort of practice and um you know my my first experience at a convention i was i was not entirely sure what was going to work and what was going to sell and um i just threw these little dinosaur paintings in as a bit of an afterthought actually mm. And they ended up, uh, you know, I made little prints of them, right? And they, they sold much better than anything else I had at the table. Right. And so I was like, wow. And, and people were so excited um, to talk about them. And yeah. um, that, was a, that was a real exciting revelation for me in that I realized people are, you know, everybody's, everybody still loves dinosaurs. And, yes. you know, the general public still really loves them. And 
um, I was just, I was having so many fun conversations with people and, and there, I was just getting so much positive feedback about these that I was like, okay, wow, wow. I could, you know, <laughs> I should just do more dinosaurs, you know? I mean, and it, it was just like kind of the, the positive reinforcement that I needed. Um, because I just sort of had always been like, this is my little, you know, nerdy passion. Right. Nobody else really cares. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll do my professional work, but like do my little like silly dinosaur drawings on the side. Um, but people really, really responded to it. And so that at that point I realized, okay, like this, this is a, a potentially viable avenue for professional work yes um and yeah and 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 ever since then um you know i i was doing conventions from that point i would say from like 2014 um through 2019 right up until the pandemic where you know a couple a, a few conventions a year where every single one my the the most the, the best-selling items were always paleo art related yeah and um you know and through and through those i met a lot of other wonderful paleo artists and, uh, you know, dinosaur paleo enthusiasts. And it just, it really, um, it, it helped me kind of discover the community as, as I know it today. And, um, so that's been a really, really fun and gratifying journey with, with, uh, yeah, with paleo creatures. Well, that's wonderful. That's really lovely to hear. But, but that leads us very neatly, Levi, into, uh, someone about whom you're very much uh, passionate and, and about whom you'd like to speak about. And that's uh, uh, Baron Franz Nopscher. Could you tell us more about him? Yes. Yes. So um, I came across this uh, person a few years ago in, a, you know, kind of a weird, I think, magazine profile. And um, I'd never heard of him. And I was immediately obsessed. And he is a, or I'm sorry, was an amateur paleontologist and nobleman from Transylvania in, in um, was born in the late 1800s. Yes. He had a really fascinating life, uh, yes. which kind of defies sort of just defies logic. Uh, he was, <laughs> yes. um, you know, he, he, he was, you know, he was born, born to the nobility, but sort of minor nobility in the sort of the Habsburg empire. Yeah. Then, you know, in his youth, uh, was sort of conscripted into becoming a spy for, um, against the Ottomans in Albania, yes. which was the neighboring, neighboring country. Um, and, you know, became very passionate about Albanian culture and lived, lived among the Albanians. And, uh, you know, when he was, I believe in his twenties and was sort of, uh, you know, a spy during world war one ended up falling in love with uh, an Albanian man and who ended up becoming his lifelong partner mm. and, you know, sort of, you know, un under the guise of a, of a, you know, I am, this is my employee, That's right. um, yes. but we were living as life partners. Yes. Um, but, you know, they, they had all kinds of, of wild adventures. You know, meanwhile, he's, he's writing, he's doing all of these scientific studies and making these fossil discoveries. And uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of the other paleontologists, we're much more interested in sort of the physical structure of, you know, the, how do, how do these like biological, these, these animals actually like mechanically move and how are they, how do they, how are they put together mm. and, and just sort of the mechanics of them. And, and Nopsha was much more interested in their behavior. How did they live? How did they interact? What was their relationship to one another? Uh, so the, so the combination of his, you know, um, 
his lack of of credentials, his sort of scientific credentials, and the sort of his unfashionable obsessions kind of left him in this state of you know frustration and and kind of left him on the fringes of the scientific community in a way that I think was always very frustrating for him. Um, he he was always looking for a way in, and uh, I think never never got the validation he was he was searching for. Uh, all of those all of those elements I think have re- really really attracted me to him as a character and as a figure. And um, yeah, I'm, I've been trying to find a way to um, you know kind of work work a book proposal into this you know oh, somehow where i'm like i want to i want to make something i want to make something with him um in in some way and so I'm, i've been kind of wrestling with the best way to do that yes. over the last few years um but i think he's 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 a figure worthy of um study and resurrection so to speak. oh absolutely i completely agree um back to uh dinosaurs uh, i meant it when i said that we were kindred spirits in many ways, Levi, but perhaps most significantly of all in paleontology terms is our shared love of hadrosaurs. May mm, I request, yes. may I request a socially distanced high five, please? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Or, you know, a, a crest bump. I got a crest bump. That sounds fantastic. Yes. All right. So tell us then, why, why hadrosaurs? What makes you love them so? You know, I, it's, it's interesting. I, I think uh, definitely I was drawn to the, um, you know, the more crusted hadrosaurs, the Parasaurolophus, the Lambiosaurus. There's something about their overall shape and appearance that is very attractive to me. Mm-hmm. But also when I was young, one of my initial, um, I would say formative dinosaur experiences was visiting the Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman, Montana, where I, near near where I grew up. And at the time, that was pretty soon after James Horner had had made the myasaur discoveries and the and the nesting, right? You know, sort of the herding and the nesting behavior with with the hadrosaurs, yeah. and that was it. Just really resonated with me in a in a way that I thought I think that was my kind of first awakening of um, you know bringing it back to Napsha, where it's like, oh, these are these are living animals with. Yes social lives and behavior like you know you sort of like got the sense of like how they behaved rather than how they simply looked and you know and they obviously they all look cool but like there was no i had not i not previously to that point gotten any sense of like how do they actually live yeah and you know there was just something um in my you know in my child childlike wonder around dinosaurs where i was like oh and they can be like you know nice caring mothers and they are in big yes. groups together and they're you know so it just it there, were, there was a like a, a warmth and a sweetness to it that um i really related to and and i so so from that point on i and, and i would say since then i've been really way more drawn and obsessed with herbivores there's something i just i'm very fascinated by by herbivore behavior and hurting behavior and the sort of the social structures. So yeah, I, I have continued to champion them and um, I, I don't think I'll ever tire of, of looking at or creating artwork around hadrosaurs. Yes. I mean, my, my reasons are essentially the same. I do tend to be much more fascinated by, uh, by herbivorous animals in general. 
and hadrosaurs just seem for me at least to to be this wonderful blend of some of my favorite groups of animals uh, in one um i love mm-hmm. i love ungulates especially um and oh yeah yeah and and hadrosaurs are that fantastic blend of reptile ungulate and bird um, all in yes, one. that's a perfect description. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and there is just nothing else like them. Yeah, just I love their their whole body shape is really beautiful to me. So that's your uh, paleontology journey. So now let's talk about your art. Yes, you work uh, bo- both digitally and uh, traditionally in in a stylized and highly recognizable way. Um, it, it's clear to me that you have a real penchant for patterns and textures. And uh, there is much um, that is reminiscent of a, a mid 20th century aesthetic, which I hope is, is a fair observation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, please talk us through then about how you arrived at your approach and, and who some of your general artistic influences were. Yeah, I, um, I've i always been really attracted to the sort of, like you said, mid, mid-century illustration work. And uh, regardless of the subject matter, uh, I really like to work with really bold colors. Yeah. And uh, I spent a lot of time with my, with my uh, color compositions. And I've always been drawn to sort of the more um, graphic illustrators, I would say, sort of fashion illustration mm-hmm. from the mid-century and even some of the earlier like wildlife illustration. You know, as a, as a graphic designer, I have a lot of, I've done a lot of work in screen printing. Oh, and yes. yes. Primarily I work, I work sort of digitally or, you know, even when I'm working analog with, with um, I do a lot of watercolor, but yeah. I, I sort of always approach it with a, almost like a screen printer sensibility where yes. I, I'm just layering, I, I'm layering distinct colors on top of each other. I'm much more interested in sort of a striking composition within um, overly rendered uh, sort of detail so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I really want to kind of convey a, a mood with like pattern and color and composition more than um, like realistic accuracy, yeah. shall we say? Yeah, of course. So I always sort of bring that approach to my, to my subjects, um, regardless of what, you know, whether it's a, whether it's a dinosaur or, you know, some sort of editorial illustration. Um, but I, I, as, as we've been saying, you know, sort of the, uh, just looking at the form of dinosaurs and paleo creatures, I think their, their forms by just by themselves are so striking and interesting mm-hmm. and endlessly yeah. fascinating. They just, they, they just lend themselves so well to interesting compositions. Yes. And there's almost something primal, I think about, I don't know, maybe there's some sort of biological um, evolutionary response that we have to these shapes. Um, yeah. I just, I find them so fascinating. I, I try to really kind of boil, boil them down to their essential forms, you know, yes. whether it's like a hadrosaur or a sauropod, it's sort of like, if you were, you know, if you were squinting at this from 10 feet away, would you be able to tell what this is? Um, yeah. And I think that's sort of how the, you know, when I talk, if we, you know, can kind of dip into some of my influences paleo wise, like I feel like the, the, Paleo artists that I was always really drawn to were were working kind of a little bit in that vein, where they're working from a more stylistic and emotional point of view, yes. so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, even even you know artists like I would say Gregory Paul, who is very technical and um, 
you know, very thorough, I would say, um, even though, you know, I think we can all say like at this point, his, his dinosaurs look pretty shrink wrapped. Right. But, um, but they're so dynamic and his, his compositions are so interesting. Yes. They really affected me from, a, from an, when I first saw them, I think when, when I was like, Oh, I've never seen dinosaurs look like this. And it was, it was a real, um, it was really mind blowing to me. And, and, his his work was so just sort of like formally interesting to me. Um, yes, and also um, the um, William Stout. Um, I actually have his, the book right here that William Stout's dinosaur illustrations, where yep. he's coming from a very fantasy based art style, and that's right. Um, you know, I think his 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 um, his compositions are almost abstract and. Uh, ornate and um, I just think the the ability to kind of look at these animals in a way that is more um, yeah emotional and instinctive rather than purely scientific I think is is kind of where I that's my sweet spot oh Um, yes where I'm like how do these how do these animals make me feel when I look at them yeah no, I, I can. If that makes sense. Oh, perfectly. I completely yeah. understand that. I think that's again, that's very much clo- close to my own um, th- the way that I, I like to approach paleo art and and the kind of paleo art that I love more uh, is very much like that as well. I um, whilst uh, yeah. I, I wish for my work to be informed by the science, it's um, uh, yeah, it's not. Again, coming back to to our not being a paleo artist in. Uh, in the, the sort of strictest sense, in that I'm less interested in uh, uh, in just trying to create a, a realistic picture for its own sake, and more about trying to evoke something. Yeah, we are kindred spirits in that in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, very much. Well, and that and that brings me to something else. I, I was I kind of wanted to bring up and and discuss where, like, I think part of my ongoing fascination with um, this this world and the subject is the it's it's not just the the animals themselves but sort of the the cultural history around them right. not just the natural history right. in in that you know the way that even something like the feathered dinosaur debate has changed in my lifetime yes. or you know the how different the spinosaurus has changed you know in you know based on new information it just it just feels like the the way that we approach and think about these animals really changes over time and it's sort of almost separate from the animals themselves yeah. you know oh, um, yes. I, that's something that's just really really fascinating to me is watching the 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 cultural progression and the cultural discussion around say feather dinosaurs oh, and, yeah. and the way that like there's there's still so much sort of entrenched uh i don't know toxic masculinity i would say it's weird <laughs> to say, but like i can't help but relate it to that you know it's sort of like my t-rex didn't have feathers <laughs> it just sort of seems like you're not going to ruin my childhood by putting feathers on my dinosaurs right. um <laughs> sort of toxic masculinity that I think is really um, a, a it's problematic and, but it's also kind of absurd and funny, but I think the, the way that our cultural moments and our cultural sensibilities really do affect how we look at science in general, but dinosaurs in particular, that's and, right. You know, thinking about like what, a, what a, um, you know, what a T-Rex looked like in the 1950s versus the 19, 
you know, 90s, it's, it's yes. pretty dramatic. And I think, you know, there, there's something about that evolution, that cultural evolution that I'm really, really fascinated by. Oh, yes. Just Absolutely. the journey of the, the story that we tell about this creature yes. and how that has changed over time. Yes. Um, so for me, that's a huge aspect of my my interest in paleontology. Yeah. No, I, I completely understand that, and I think that forms pretty much one of the the core aspects um, of of chasmosaurs. Actually, the the discussion around yeah. looking yeah. at yeah uh, looking at the the, the cultural influences uh, of paleo art, and not just uh, not just the ways in which they're depicted. But, but let us come back though to uh, to your uh, artistic influences then um you oh, sure. you yeah. already mentioned uh greg paul and and william stout and and the other two that you mentioned to me as being uh, one of uh, among your key influences uh, are douglas henderson and and james Gurney. oh yes yes i'm i'm just completely fascinated because uh, obviously these are, are major paleo art powerhouses um they are some of the greatest names in the late dinosaur renaissance and beyond and and these these four, at least, um, I cannot think of a single paleo artist who does not count them among their heroes. I, I know I certainly do, and their influences, as you already hinted at, um, are felt in different ways. I mean, Greg Paul is practically synonymous with the key dinosaur renaissance shift in our view of dinosaurs as lithe, active, even athletic creatures, but, but which we're now uh, in in a sort of reversal, uh, are having to revise in the post or yesterday's uh, period. Yeah, um, and and Douglas Henderson does extraordinary things with paleo art uh, in again what you were saying earlier about creating an almost a poetry with paleo art because he goes beyond yeah. goes beyond creating. Uh, even he does create startlingly convincing visions of the Mesozoic world um, as though they were in front of us. But but still, he does this in a way that has little to do with imitating photography. Well, I think that's a perfect way to put it. Like his, his uh, Douglas Henderson in particular, there there is so, uh, poetry is a great way to put it. Um, mm. His work is so immersive and uh, evocative and atmospheric. And, and I think... That 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 is something that I aspire to um, yes. in terms of you know an ability to create a mood and and to immerse the the viewer into a world and I think also it's just it's often so unusual like I you know I will look at his his paintings and just be like how did you come to this conclusion right not 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 that it's wrong but it's just like it's from a point of view that like I would have never considered exactly. otherwise. But uh, to come back to your work again, Levi, mm -hmm. it's it's just so interesting to me uh, that these these uh, artists whom we've been talking about, their their own styles are so decidedly different from yours that at a glance, I don't think one would have necessarily detected their influence on your work. Oh, okay. My question really is just that: how do you manage um, to keep the I suppose we'll call it the integrity of your style and approach um, so well, despite being so um, strongly influenced by these people who work so differently from you. That's a good question. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think at this point I've, I've gotten a pretty good sense of like my own materials and, and how I, how I approach my own work. I think I, you yeah. know, and, and I, tend to be influenced by so many different things in general. And I, yes, 
for you know for for me i think it's it's important to have kind of a distinctive style and i i i think i got to a point where i stopped worrying so much about style as i did about how do i think about making art in terms of like yes how do i put down layers how do i like wh- how do i work with color how do i work with composition and i sort of like the the way that i think is really the most important um and the way that i approach a piece is more important than like rather than worrying about how does it look stylistically mm-hmm. i think the style just sort of comes out on its own yeah um which is i think it took me a long time to let go of that um yes. creatively i think we're like this is just how i work this is how my sort of my instincts tell me to go this way and um and then you know obviously there is there's obviously a lot of critical thinking involved when you're when you're creating a composition but um I'm I, I'm really trying to sort of let go of my um, sort of you know the the, the higher brain stylistic um, cri- self criticism shall we say sure um, yeah but you know and I think like something that fascinates me about these artists I think all of them is that uh, you know I look at their work and I'm like I don't know how you got here in terms of like <laughs> I don't know how you you know, like I don't work in oil paint, for instance, or I don't work in, I think Douglas Henderson works in a combination of, I would say, watercolor and, and That's wash, right. maybe. I don't know. Uh, in pastels as well. Uh, he, he works in all media. Oh, okay. Um, 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 okay. Pastels, okay. pastels yeah, oils sometimes. But, but even, you know, and I would, I would consider myself a very experienced artist, but like I look at their work and, and I'm like, I don't know how you got here. Like, I don't know how you achieved this 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 piece um so there's there's still an aspect of it for me of just kind of wonder and bewilderment and mystery and i like i know how i make art and i don't but i don't know how they make art (laughs) so yeah yeah it's it's sort of i i think um and i think that is actually a i think that's a feature not a bug right so uh, it's like um there's a part of it that i think I can retain a bit of wonder and mystery uh, about other people's work when I can look at it and not necessarily know how the sausage is made, so to speak. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes that really does kind of take away the magic where, where, you know, there are certain artists who I'm like, Oh, I know exactly how you did that. I know you, how you got it. like, <laughs> yes. like when, once I start sort of crit- critiquing other people's work from a, from a technical standpoint or, where I'm like, oh, well, I would have used, I would have used this brush instead of that brush, or I would use this, you know, like, you know, for, for me, and particularly around paleo art, I, I do, I really appreciate kind of the magic of it still, like yeah. that sort of childlike wonder. Um, so I think I'm maybe more, maybe more drawn to and influenced by people whose work continues to baffle me, if that makes sense. Right. Oh, it makes perfect sense. I, I understand that. And that's a good answer, actually, and something um, which a lot of us will be comforted by, um, especially what you said about um, really just losing your focus on on style or on what it's going to look like and concentrating more on what you want to, to achieve with it. And then the rest of the visuals will just follow and, uh, and it just becomes your own work after a while. So, yes, I think there, yeah, is, yeah. there is a lot to learn from what you just said. Actually, I do want to ask you, uh, especially in light of, of, of all our recent uh, subjects. Um, what are your feelings in general on the apparent bias for realism 
in paleo art? Oh, interesting question. Um, I don't know if I have strong feelings about it. Right. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me from a scientific point of view, I think, mm. in a way. Um, I think, you know, and there's a lot of very, very talented paleo artists that I adore whose whose work is, is much more uh, scientific in nature and realistic in yes. nature. Um, so I think there's a, there's a huge value in that, um, particularly in like science communication and, oh yes, uh, the, you know, kind of helping the ongoing discussion and learning around, around them. But I think there's room for both, right? I think both are very important. Oh, yeah. And I think there's plenty of room for all kinds of expression around this subject. And, as, as somebody who is, I'm very interested in science communication in general and its its power to influence, you know, policy and education. And I think that, yes. you know, with, with as much accuracy as possible, I think it's also important that you, that people find a way to communicate these ideas and these discoveries in ways that are accessible to people. And so... Sometimes I think like, you know, as a viewer, folks would be much more, you know, drawn to or attracted by a, a, a very realistic version of a, of a dinosaur or a very realistic rendering of dinosaur. Um, and and right. that would be for, for them, that might be incredibly informative. And, they, you know, for them, oh, I've never seen I've never considered a Spinosaurus looking like this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet I think for other folks who are not as sort of scientifically minded, like they're going to, they're going to be much more, you know, attracted by say a painting or, or an illustration that kind of approaches it from a point of view that they're not familiar with or, or that they're not expecting. Um, so I think, I think there's, there's room for all of it. Um, I mean, this, I suppose this, um, as, as regular listeners to Chasmosaurs will know, um, is, again, one of the subjects that concern us quite a bit here. Um, the, uh, because we welcome the, the many and varied approaches to paleo art. And, um, but there is, it's undeniable, uh, a, a kind of bias towards realism. And yes, um, uh, in, in very many ways, that's invaluable because we, we need that, uh, especially in a science communication uh, capacity. Um, but as you say, there is room, so much room for for all approaches. Um, and I just wish, I think, this is this is me speaking personally now, I just wish that um, that the paleosphere as a whole was a lot more, uh, I wouldn't say that they weren't open as such, but was a lot more, um, a lot more culturally informed in terms of the ways in which mm. we could expand paleo art. Yes, yes you, right, you get right. That. That's yeah. that's a great point. Yeah, like because so, so, I think your work in particular is, you know, you're informed by much more interesting, you know, a, a much wider sort of artistic and cultural influence than Hilary, right? Like, and 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 I think so. Actually, that makes me think about. So I would say, as an artist, I would find it much more frustrating. I think to work within the very sort of realistic, purely scientific sort of vein right. I, I you know I, I to, to me I would think like it would be so much more difficult and competitive whereas I you know with without the sort of constraints of you know 
realism, I feel like I can sort of, you know, and I feel like you probably feel this way too, where like you've, you've carved out a niche for yourself where you're like, nobody makes the work that I'm making, right? Like mm. this looks very much like this is my work and this is, it's sort of distinctively me, right? Not to say yes. that there's not similarities between artists, but, but I, I, I feel like you're working within a range of, of sort of, you have a fingerprint that, that is yeah. distinctively yours. And so, so for me, it's very freeing, right? I, I, I just don't have yeah, that yeah. pressure. I don't, I don't put that pressure on myself. It makes perfect sense. Yes. All right. Last question, Levi. Are you working on anything paleo related at the moment? Uh, and if not, uh, anything in the pipeline? Oh, I'm not. I wish I was. Um, I will. Yeah, I will just tell you. I've. I. Um. I just had. Um, a, a new children's book was released yesterday. Um, and I'm, oh, yes. I'm excited about it. But I. Um. It's about. It's about a baby drag queen. Uh. So it's. Uh. It's not at all related to science. But ah, it's very fun. That's big wig. Is that right? It is. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. But I, I really, I, like I was saying earlier, like I'm really trying to find a way into dino dinosaurs, like making a book about dinosaurs. So, um, and and finding a way, a unique way of telling the, telling a story that that is about dinosaurs or relates to dinosaurs that is, um, yeah, I, I'm looking for my way in, so to speak. Um, Right. I mean, right. I, I think I'm always, you know, I've always got several pieces of of just sort of standalone illustrations that I'm working on that are sort of in various stages of completion. And, yeah. um, you know, they, they tend to take, <laughs> you know, weeks to months to just because I'll set them aside and then not touch them for periods oh, of time. I know that. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think I'm trying to find kind of a longer term project that I can really sink my teeth into around paleo right. art and um, paleontology. So um, I'm kind of just like keeping my, my eyes and ears open and my senses sharpened for that opportunity, whatever that might be. Um, but I'm, you know, there's a few folks that I'm, um, are you familiar with Corey Bing? Yes. The artist yes. Corey Bing. Yes. Um, uh, she's a good friend of mine and who, one of, one of whom I met, um, you know, in the, in the comic convention circuit and, right. uh, she's doing the illustrations for Riley Black's new book, which is coming oh. out, um, in oh, yes, of course. and That's I'm right. so excited about like those, you know, and, and, um, I've been following Riley's work for years and Corey is yes. a friend. And so it's, it's one of those where I'm like, I'm looking at their collaboration uh, with a lot of excitement and yeah, of course. Um, so right now I'm just sort of like celebrating my other friends accomplishments and achievements while I'm kind of trying to figure out where I'm gonna where am I gonna make my mark and honestly I would say that the Nopsha I'm, I'm really passionate about this Nopsha project um, yes and I'm yes. just trying to figure out what what form what form is that going to take yes of course I mean um hopefully we will be interviewing Riley next month. Oh, um, for, wonderful. For our next episode. Um, and yes, um, I had forgotten that, that Corey was illustrating uh, Riley's new book. But yes, you, you're yeah. absolutely right. I have everything crossed um, for whatever paleo-related project uh, will come your way. And, and I'm certainly oh, looking so much. To, to the Nopsha book uh, in whenever it should arrive. But 
but yes, very much looking forward Thank to that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Levi, it's been such a treat speaking to you. Um, all it's been so fun. Thank you, for this, <laughs> thank you for this wonderful conversation. I'm glad we finally got to chat. I'm such a huge fan. I want to oh, let you know. Thank you so much. Uh, all, all our very best wishes to you uh, in your endeavors, as always. Um, thank you again so much for being our guest. Yes, thank you very much for having me. So next week, we're going to talk about the latest Jurassic World film. Um, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> next month, we'll have, uh, we'll have Riley Black on next month. Yeah, next month, I'll have Riley Black on. Let's talk about the next Jurassic World film, um, why Chris Pratt is so handsome, and the Pyroraptor is so awesome, and they made a really good job with that Giganotosaurus <sighs> design, with all the big iguana spines on its back and stuff, and how it's... We need to so, leave them alone. It may it may fight a T Rex, and they did leave live thirty million years apart. But it doesn't matter because it's just a film. You have to get over it. It's just a film. It's just fiction. For God's sake, get look, over hang it. Hang on. Do do people really want us to review the Jurassic World movie? No, do no, it. they don't. No, 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 please, I beg you. No, I no, no, no. Okay, we're not quite that masochistic here. We could just sell out. As I said, we could go for like sponsorship from NordVPN. We review the Jurassic World films. You know, we talk about how Dilophosaurus didn't really have a. Thank you all for listening. Mark, Nati, thank you for podcasting with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for doing all the work, Niels. Oh, uh, the the pleasure is all mine. No, the work's all yours. And we hope you tune in next month for another riveting episode of Love in a Time of Chasmosaurus. This is me signing off. Goodbye. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Au revoir. Dos vedaños. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. You can find all the images and links we discussed today on the podcast show notes on our blog at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs and on Twitter at Chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, you can leave us a good review on your favorite podcasting platform or consider backing us on Patreon at patreon.com slash litc. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bandcamp.com slash bronzewing. Stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, and we hope to see you again soon. กรุงเทพมหานครอมรรัตนโกสินทร์มหินทราอยุธยามหาดิลกภพนพรัตราชธานีบุรีรมอุดมราชนิเวศมหาสถานอมรพิมานอวตารสถิตสกทัตยวิษณุกรรมประสิทธิ์This is the full name of กรุงเทพมหานครอ or Bangkok as you know it. That's a paragraph. You can't have your capital city as being a paragraph. I mean that Hang place on. in Wales got nothing on that. <laughs>